Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Hi everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. And in this season of The Biz, we are talking all about tech ethics. And today we are gonna be delving into the field of tech ethics as it relates to medicine and the medical field. And for that wonderful conversation, we have a very special guest with us today, Eric Pianalto. Hi, Eric, how are you? Hi, Cindy. Uh, It's great to be with you today. I'm doing great, hope you are as well. I am. So for those of you who don't know, let me just tell you a little bit about Eric. Eric was named the president of Mercy Hospital of Northwest Arkansas back in 2013, and he still serves in that capacity today, and we are lucky to have him in that role. Uh, He's a Northwest Arkansas native, so the name Pianalto, if you live in Northwest Arkansas, may be familiar to many of you. He's been with Mercy Hospital System since 1994 in a number of different roles, which has really equipped him well for the role that he's in now, leading all of Mercy Hospital in Northwest Arkansas. Prior to being president, he was doing roles like chief operating officer for regional operations in Arkansas and Oklahoma. And like I said, that two decades of work has given him a very balanced view of healthcare, prepared him for the role he's in now. And uh, when we talk about the role he's in now and the challenges, we're going to jump right into what some of those challenges are because we're still dealing with COVID, which means Eric is still dealing with COVID. So Eric, thanks again for being here today. And before we jump into COVID, I always think it's great for the audience to just get to know you a little bit. So can you just share with us kind of how did you find your way to Mercy and, and stayed there for over two decades and, and end up running, running the whole system in Northwest Arkansas? Tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. Thank you, Cindy. Um, you know, of course, it started at the University of Arkansas. Uh, left that out of my bio. <laughs> yes, I'm a University of Arkansas grad. Initially was in manufacturing. So while I was in college and and shortly after college, uh, worked in manufacturing and uh, got to cut my teeth in leadership uh, in manufacturing and healthcare kind of found me. Uh, and it was a job that allowed me to get back to Northwest Arkansas at the time. Um, and I thought it would be a stopover until my next uh, leadership job in manufacturing. Um, but uh, I found a heart and a passion for it. Um, it was something where I could uh, without a science background, have an impact on people uh, and really um, uh, fine tune my skills and my learnings to, uh, to have an impact on communities. Um, you know, I, I think the greatest advice I got along the way uh, was from a guy familiar to many of us, Mike Duke, um, who, uh, who once told me, and I've heard him speak on this topic as well, uh, treat every job as if it's the best job you ever had. Uh, and always assume that you're going to get fired doing it. <laughs> uh, if you look at my career in Mercy, I would say that's uh, that's pretty accurate. Um, I'm uh, curious, inquisitive, um, like to have an impact uh, where I can. I didn't aspire to this role, and uh, you know, just uh, 
was part of my journey and was an opportunity again to serve uh, in the community and, and have an impact and really love what I do. Well, that's fantastic. And you're having quite an impact. And Mercy is, of course, really growing in this area and has been just so important with COVID. Um, still dealing with it, you know, almost two years on. And there are a number of issues before we get into specifically tech ethics issues uh, that surround COVID um, and implicate sort of all leadership issues and ethical issues and kind of how do you manage your responsibilities in the right way. And I'm wondering if you can just share with us a little bit about that journey. I've read in the paper and heard about things like rationing care at times. Um, don't know if we ever reached that point here. And But I just want the audience to understand a little bit about what are some of the things that you, in this hundred year you know, pandemic situation that you've never had to execute before and other hospital systems too, but that you found yourself having to contemplate this time that touched on kind of ethics and leadership. Sure, yeah, I, I would have never dreamed that uh, as part of my role, I would be part of a hundred year uh, pandemic and, and uh, dealing with uh, an ever-changing unpredictable uh, situation and you know throughout there's been shortages of lots of different things that have driven uh, lots of lots of decisions uh, there were supply chain issues uh, you might remember yep beginning with personal protective equipment and how we've deployed that limited resource how we acquired it uh, you know a lot of uh, there were a lot of scams out there to acquire um, personal sure. but uh, so you know a lot of um, ethics involved in that as well, Cindy, just looking at uh, supply chain, how we deployed various pieces of equipment in, at the bedside or in uh, different care settings to protect our workforce. Uh, then you had testing shortages. Um, you know, so uh, again, we had to use a very limited resource uh, to figure out what the best use of testing uh, was and what it really meant to have a confirmed test. Uh, and then, you know, what were the decisions that followed that? Um, so you had, you know, a couple of early, early issues. And then, you know, as we really got into the pandemic and the height of the pandemic, um, we had already prepared for this. Uh, it's the idea of crisis standards of care. And uh, in that situation, it's almost about like being a field hospital in, the, in a battlefield where, uh, you have, you know, people that are injured and you're having to triage them up front to use the very limited resource that you have in the battlefield. So since we were dealing uh, with floods of people all over the world who were seeking medical care, uh, we developed uh, these crisis standards of care uh, in the event that we would ever need them uh, to really look at survivability, to look at uh, how we apply limited resources to a population and those are very, very difficult discussions. Um, yeah, you know, involving uh, a number of uh, the best and brightest physicians that we have uh, throughout our health system, uh, ethicists, uh, nurses, uh, pastoral care, uh, and some family members actually. Um, so, uh, developed uh, the criteria uh, that would help us triage people at the front door. Uh, and determine the, a treatment plan, say for a limited resource like ventilators. Uh, if yeah. we ventilators, how do we make a decision about who gets the ventilator and who doesn't? Thankfully, we never had to enact crisis standards of care here in Arkansas. 
but across the world, some people did. So, uh, so lots of ethical decision making, lots of uh, heartfelt decision making through that time. Yeah, things again because it hasn't happened in a hundred years that you we we as a society only envision that happening as kind of part of a war, right? Where you're rationing care and, and treating injured on the battlefield and you know, to to deploy that in the hospital setting and in the healthcare setting, I'm sure was just mind-bending at times. So you're even sitting down and having that conversation about setting up the parameters and then recognizing we may reach the case. Hopefully we don't, but we may reach the point where we have to actually deploy this. And knowing that other hospital systems did is just, it's pretty incredible um, and something that not many people will live through. And you're right. I'm glad to know that you had some ethicists at the table and involved in, in a lot of those decisions. I think that, that position in particular is really important when it comes to medical ethics, because things are always evolving in that field. So, wow. Well, congratulations to you and getting through it so far. We have a great team of people here who, um, who um, their, their passion is also taking care of people. So um, it's, uh, it's very rewarding to watch um, some of the best and brightest people in the field uh, do everything within their knowledge base and then with their technical skills to, uh, to help the people uh, who most need us. So. Yeah. So let's now move from those ethical decisions about COVID um, and let's talk about tech ethics in, in particular and how, how it looks when you're using it responsibly, let's say, in, in, in healthcare. Um, and so the first thing that I just wonder about is the use of technology in healthcare. And does it, when you inject technology into something that you know, to this point, we've kind of grown up with, with it just being one-to-one. -one. It's a very personal relationship you have, you know, when you go see your doctor and when you go, you know, you talk to your physician assistant or you talk to the nurse and, and there's a lot of judgment calls they have to make right in that situation. And so what I wonder about is does the injection of technology, um, maybe through telemedicine or other things, do, does that help or does that hurt? Do we see the error rate from humans go down when you rely on technology and healthcare? Yes, absolutely. Um, so there, there are many great uses of technology in healthcare. And I would say healthcare was slow to adopt technology. Um, the reliance uh, historically for the last hundred years has been on uh, the human brain really uh, to absorb a lot of information, retain that knowledge, uh, look at a set of circumstances and determine a, a treatment plan. Uh, when you do that, uh, you have a lot of great outcomes, but you also bring in an error rate um, because we're relying on humans and their, uh, their ability to recall the right information at the right time for the right treatment. And as recent as 2010, only 5% of health systems across the country even had electronic medical records. So we were relying on a paper. Oh, my goodness. Flipping through a paper paper record to determine, uh, you know, what was going on with the patient and then using their mind mostly uh, for uh, the treatment plan. And um, the, the estimate in the U.S. is uh, about 250,000 people die annually of medical error as a result of medical error, third leading cause of death in the United States. Um, so, you know, technology uh, and the adoption of technology in the healthcare field uh, some uh, some easy wins there are drug interactions. So suddenly when we have um, 
your complete medical record in electronic format and we go to prescribe a medicine for you, it's, uh, it's searching in the background uh, to make sure Cindy is not allergic to that medication. Yeah. He saves lots of lives, saves lots of, uh, of, of uh, sustained treatment or potential treatment. Uh, another one uh, that it allows us to do suddenly when we're gathering uh, all the information while you're having a hospital stay is to look for a condition called sepsis. Uh, sepsis, uh, about 160,000 people across the country will acquire sepsis um, while during a hospital stay. Uh, and once you get it, it's very difficult to treat and can result in disability or death at a, at a pretty high rate. Mm-hmm. And so uh, by the use of technology uh, and artificial intelligence, we can run screens in the background for things that are going on with your health status in the moment that are predictors of that this person may develop sepsis rapidly. And we can take early interventions and uh, we're able actually to detect it before the patient even knows they're getting sicker, uh, hmm. detect it before the human eye will detect it. So. Uh, so it, it pops up an alert, allows us to take interventions much faster uh, and uh, prevent serious illness and death as a result of sepsis. So lots of great uses of technology. Uh, you mentioned telemedicine. Yeah. Uh, uh, highly utilized throughout the U.S. Uh, neurology as a specialty is very limited across the country. Uh, not a lot of new people graduating in uh, the specialty of neurology that treats strokes and uh, many other conditions, um, nervous conditions as well. And we can apply the technology to bring it to the bedside um, through telemedicine with a set of instruments at the bedside where a nurse can, uh, can utilize the instruments at the bedside for a, a remote neurologist to make a diagnosis and, um, and put a treatment plan in place. And sometimes that's a clot-busting drug. I mean, you may be in small town Arkansas, uh, where there's not a neurologist for 150 miles, uh, you're having a stroke, we can deploy this technology, uh, we can administer medication within 30 to 45 minutes uh, that'll save your life and, and save, uh, uh, make your outcome much better uh, in the end. So great uses of technology. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like you're extending a very limited resource to a broad swath of the population so that they can actually you know, take advantage of it, which is, which is great. But in that example, or just in like your basic telemedicine example, which I will say took, took us a long time to warm up to, but COVID kind of forced us all to get there, right? To just talk to your doctor over the phone and we'll see what they, if they can help you over the phone. Um, so it probably helped us leapfrog over some of that resistance, which is a good thing. But do you think the neurologists or the doctors that it can increase their chances of missing something when they're not face-to-face with the patient in the room? Um, certainly, uh, it has its limitations. Uh, there, uh, there is no doubt that uh, using technology remotely um, doesn't give you every piece of information that you would have in a face-to-face visit or being able to touch the patient or uh, really look into their eyes or uh, look for signs and symptoms. Um, so, you know, I think the best use uh, of it is for, um, uh, you know, minor conditions, sinus infection, um, ear infections, at least at the primary care level. But even then again, it has uh, limitations where I don't think it will ever replace one-to-one care. Yeah. Uh, 
And in the case of teleneurology or remote surgery uh, as a possibility, yeah, you're going to have a human interaction in the room in those situations. Okay, helping augment the uh, you know that setting so that they can intervene or they can provide additional information uh, because the human body is a very complicated organism. Yeah. Uh, not everybody reacts the same way to certain treatments. Um, we know that standard care uh, and protocols will, uh, will produce evidence-based medicine that produces good results about 80 to 85% of the time. Uh, there's about 15 to 20% of the time that the human body doesn't react uh, the same. And we need to apply uh, a different treatment based on what we're seeing uh, in the moment. So, so I think it's a combination, Cindy. I think we'll continue to see, uh, even when we're applying remote care, uh, augmented by somebody at the bedside. That's, that's now that helps me get my head around it a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So even if it is a remote surgeon where, you know, they've, they've shown that and you like see just like they're maneuvering the robot's arms in the, in the room and maybe they've got those cool Oculus 2 glasses on for the virtual reality or whatever it is, you know, it just seems so much like science fiction when you, when you think about it. But when you can imagine that there's somebody in the room, so it's more of an assisted right use of technology it's not just kind of hands off i think that um certainly makes it feel a little more responsible and and might help the uh you know the general public warm up to it a bit more because you know get, get going from complete one-on-one -on -one interaction to you know having a robot do surgery on you is feels like oh, i don't know if i'm comfortable with that like what if something goes south you know so that's that's a good that's a good uh i like that visual and that thought about it's an assist that's good surgery you know if if something were to happen uh, during surgery uh, where an artery gets nicked or I mean those those are no applications of surgery uh, there's a surgeon at the bedside who will immediately um, take over uh, yeah. moment and and uh, apply the appropriate intervention but it allows us to really spread the best and the brightest all over the world that mm -hmm. potential exists uh, to reach rural areas, to reach uh, even small urban areas where you have a gap in certain types of care, or there's only five surgeons in the world that have the capability to perform this procedure. I mean, it's uh, the opportunities are endless. They really are. And, uh, you know, marrying them up with a human in the room or a surgeon in the room feels very responsible from a kind of use of technology perspective. So that's great. So I mentioned sci-fi, and I want to I want to hit on that in a minute. It's kind of science fiction, but but to kind of set the stage a bit, let's talk about one more type of technology, biotech. I hear that often in the medical field. What what is that, and um, what are some of the risks associated with it when you are talking about ethical use of technology in medicine? Yeah, there's you know a lot of uh, a lot of uses for biotechnology. A lot of research going on. Um, you know, if you if you dial back to 2006 to 2010, uh, the mapping of the genome, the mapping of your DNA uh, was beginning to happen, and lots and lots of ethical issues raised during that time, and lots of research done on uh, biotech and the use of that. Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, how how will it be applied? Um, what happens if somebody uses it for uh, in, a, in, a, in inappropriate ways, uh, uses your DNA, DNA against you. Mm -hmm. 
talk about the positives first. Uh, what we see today out of that research is uh, incredibly targeted cancer care. Uh, that's one of the uh, very first research arms that was used for the D as a result of the DNA research is to understand your DNA, how cancer is attacking your body, and wow. apply a very specific treatment to your DNA uh, that's targeted and doesn't create uh, ancillary damage. Uh, so if you think about um, most cancers historically have been treated with radiation or chemo. They have extreme side effects and are targeted to an area, not to the specific point of cancer. So you have other damage going on to your body when you take, um, you know, uh, high ends of chemo or you're blasting radiation to an area. Now you're damaging other cells in your body and, and potentially have lots of side effects from those. Uh, as cancer treatment is continuing to develop, uh, they're able to target your DNA, go to a specific spot with very little, if any, uh, ancillary effect to other parts of your body. So it's wow. just incredible, incredible um, uses of uh, bio, the biotech industry. Mm -hmm. You know, we also have, I mean, people have wearables on their arms today. Uh, it's actually an FDA approved um, wearable that will give you a medical grade EKG. Uh, and you can transmit it um, uh, to a doctor to look at your EKG to see if uh, you just happen to have a racing heart or do I have something like a heart attack going on uh, and I need to seek immediate treatment. So, um, you know, lots of, again, opportunity in the biotech industry to impact people's healthcare, uh, intervene much faster. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and save lives ultimately. That early intervention is fabulous, and it, it kind of starts to push on the edge of, you know, proactive healthcare, and it not all just being, you know, kind of defensive and waiting until you get sick, but getting in, in front of it and, you know, thinking about what can we do to, to be more preventative and making it easier and more accessible, and I, I, I like that view of technology. That's, um, that's really interesting. So it is fun to think about, but it also does make me wonder a bit if some of these, you um, advancements make the use of technology and medicine available more to those who have the economic means to afford them, perhaps, than those who don't, which that in and of itself could be an ethical issue, right? It's certainly a moral issue. Um, how, do you, how do you think we go about, a, as a society, kind of addressing, addressing that issue? Yeah, you know, it's something, uh, certainly, as a, as a health system, we look look and seek to impact our entire community, not just those that can afford uh, certain treatments. And certainly um, some of those technologies are only available to the wealthy. I mean, uh, people who wear uh, the wearables uh, on their arm, uh, there's, you know, uh, there's a limited uh, piece of society that can afford those. But where I use the example of uh, teleneurology, uh, we can make that available to uh, you know, a poor portion of Africa or uh, a small rural town in Arkansas or in any other part of the world. Um, so, you know, it, I think with all types of technology, whether it be the wearables or whether it be the uh, advancements of teleneurology and other applications and specialties, 
the price points will continue to come down. Uh, they'll be more affordable, more available. Yeah. Uh, and you could also create in certain areas, um, you know, pods of places where people could go uh, to seek that technology as well, where you house uh, appropriate devices. Maybe you don't have uh, availability to immediate care, but we have a place that you can go uh, connect via uh, virtual medicine uh, to somebody, put on the devices, and and uh, and help render treatment at the bedside. So yeah, you're right. A very important uh, subject. I appreciate you bringing it up. Uh, I think there are ways we can deal with it. Uh, some will exploit it, uh, certainly for profit reasons. Um, but I think most people that have gone into healthcare went into it with the right heart and the right passion to to care for the person, not uh, not based on their socioeconomic status. Yeah, yeah, I um, I think that's certainly a very laudable goal and one of the reasons why I have so much respect for everyone who's in the medical field. Well, Eric, this has been a fabulous conversation. I've really enjoyed having a few minutes to just let you share your wealth of information and wisdom um, and experiences that you've lived these last few years and the experiences that you see on the horizon with technology. It's been great. I always like to ask my guests one last question. If somebody wants to go deeper in this space and learn more about um, responsible use of, of tech in the medical field, do you have any good resources you might point them to, like a book or maybe a documentary or a good podcast series or something? Yeah, you know, a couple of podcasts come to mind. Uh, one of them is by our good friend, Cindy Mooring. It's an article uh, that's on the Walton Business College website on uh, AI and ethical use of AI. So I might point you uh, to that blog that Cindy did, uh, because I think the principles in that article are, are uh, the same across all technologies and use of technologies in an ethical way. Uh, there's a few TED Talks out there um, on uh, biotech uh, ethics and how they come together, uh, even using uh, uh, robots and AI to treat uh, at, the, at the point of care without human intervention and the ethical dilemmas around that. So I think there's a few TED Talks out there that, that might be of interest. Great. Uh, I talked a little bit about the bad use of um, some of these uh, some of this research and findings, particularly as it relates to DNA. Yeah. Uh, point people to the new Bond movie, Cindy. Um, uh, I won't be the spoiler. I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert here, uh, but uh, some fascinating uh, things in that movie around biotech and how it can be used uh, poorly uh, and against um, our moral code or our uh, society's norms. Um, so I might encourage you, it's, it would be thought-provoking to think about it in that way as well. Oh, yeah. Oftentimes, sci-fi is a peek into the future in many ways. So, you know, and I haven't seen that movie yet. So now I have even more reason to want to go uh, see that movie. I'll, I'll try to do that over the holidays that are coming up here. So, well, Eric, this has been great. And I also want to say thank you for being a member of my external advisory board as well for the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative and for giving back to your alma mater um, and the university in that way. We are um, a better uh, board and we are focused on things um, at the right level in large part because you're a part of it. So thank you. I was honored to be asked and I'm honored to serve. It's a, you put together a great group of people that, uh, that I'm learning from every day. So thank you for the invitation. 
Well, you're welcome. All right. We will leave it there. And uh, thanks again, Eric. Really appreciated the conversation. Thank you, Cindy. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.